love caused him to welcome anyone who would follow him. So loving like Jesus will move us to eliminate man-made barriers to a relationship with him or his church. Then, Jesus' love caused him to cross cultural boundaries for others. So loving like Jesus will move us outside our cultural norms to meet the needs of others. Then last week, what we saw with Pastor Joe is this. Jesus' love caused him to actively seek close relationships. So loving like Jesus will move us to know and be known by our church community. I think it's at this point in this series that things are getting frightening. At least they are to me. Because what we're talking about is the people around you, we're going to build relationships, even greater relationships than we have. And I do say the people around you, so I'm going to ask you to take a second, swivel your head, look at the people around you, them, the one that you just looked at, building relationships with some of the people around you. The church our size, we're not saying every single person needs to know every other person, but we are saying as a church community, we are going to take the first step towards those people. We are going to leave our culture behind for the sake of reaching them. We are going to let go of our norms to be there. We are going to actively seek, intentionally try to build close relationships with the people around you. That can get frightening. You start to ask a lot of what-ifs, and at least I do. Some what-ifs, like, uh, what if I don't know what to say? That's me pretty much every time after every service. <laughs> what do I say? What if they don't like me? What if I don't like them? What if we don't have anything in common? What if we don't know what to talk about? What if they're different than me? What if we hold different views? What if, what if, what if? And you know what? Those are good questions to ask. I'm not up here to tell you don't ask what if. Quite the opposite. I want to boil those questions down into one big question. And it's really this. What are these relationships going to be based on and filled with? What's the foundation of our relationship going to be? What are we going to spend time on together? You already have an answer to this to some extent, and I think we can kind of see it if we put it this way. I want you to fill in the blank in your own mind. My relationship with blank is based on and filled with blank. Go ahead and think through the different relationships you have, because many of us have spousal relationships. We have parent-child relationships. We have neighbor relationships, cousin relationships. We have a relationship with cashiers and barbers and waiters. We have a relationship with the people down our street. There's something that you are going to base that relationship on and fill it with. And in a room this size with this many people, we're going to get some varied answers. That could be you have a similar view or you do a similar activity or you're in a similar geographical location. You attend the same worship service. You like the same hobbies. Uh, during the first service, we used the illustration because I was talking with someone beforehand. The based on and filled with could be as simple as baseball. You go to baseball games together. That's what connects you. And then that's what you talk about. And you're updating each other on stats. Even though we have answers or we might wonder what the answers are, we need to know what the answer should be. Because there is a should here. It's not just fill in the blank and let's move on. 
To understand what it should be is precisely what we're talking about with loving like Jesus. We're only going to know how we should fill in that second blank if we look to Jesus. So that's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to open to John chapter 1. That's going to be our text for today. We're going to look in verses 14 through 18. So as you flip there, I'm just going to remind you of what we saw in our scripture reading today. Because in that scripture reading, it pointed out that there is this word, this expression of thought that is both God and with God. This expression of thought that is God and with God is the creator of all things and the light bringer and brings us into a right relationship with, uh, with God by faith. It makes us children of God. That's what this word is. So let's see what else John says about this word that we know to be Jesus in verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. In all of his fullness we have of, of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. What we're going to see in this passage is this, that Jesus' love caused him to extend grace and truth. And that's what we need to base our relationships off of. And that's what we need to fill our relationships with. To love like Jesus, we need to know Jesus. So today we're going to walk through three truths about Christ. About this, about his ministry and his nature. So that we can love like him. But before we do that, we need to talk to him. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can study it together. God, thank you for your people that you have brought here this morning. It's not an accident who is here today. Thank you for leading them here that we can study your word together. God, thank you for your spirit at work in us, helping us to perceive and understand and using what we have learned to transform us into the image of your son. God, I pray that you would work in me this morning, that you would calm my nerves, that you would kill any pride in me, that you would have me speak only exactly what you want me to speak. And God, that you would use everything this morning for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So three truths about Jesus. The first I want you to notice in this passage is this. Jesus was full of both grace and truth at the same time. Jesus was full of both grace and truth at the same time. You look, if you will, in John 1, verse 14. Because it begins with one of the most powerful miracles that we read about in Scripture. And the Word became flesh. God himself became a human. That is powerful, and we need to not skip over that. That the creator of heaven and earth, perfectly holy, chose to become human. And when human did not choose to stay in heaven or live on a mountaintop and avoid all of us dirty, sinful people, but chose to dwell among us. If we look at the word for dwell among us, it's literally pitch his tent with us. 
It has the idea of the Old Testament with the tabernacle, where at one point in human history, God chose to manifest his presence in a unique way in the tabernacle. And you would go to the tabernacle and we would hear from God. Now we have this incarnate word, the word made flesh, the God-man, who is the word speaking. So this God chooses to become flesh, dwell among us, and we beheld his glory. We see the glory of the word. Because this word is God, what we're seeing when we see the glory of the word is we're seeing the glory of God. And John makes that point clear. This glory is the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So the word is God and the word was with God. This word became man and we saw his glory. And by seeing his glory, we see the glory of the Father. The glory is the radiance of God's holiness. It's the shining forth of his perfection, all that he is. So when we look to God's glory, we see Jesus and we see God's glory, we are seeing his shining forth of his majestic powerful beauty. When you look at Jesus in his word and hear Jesus in the gospel, you are looking at the glory of God. Hallelujah. And that's particularly important because now John gives a description of what we see. When we look to Jesus, we see that Jesus is full of If you were in charge of finishing that sentence, what would you put? What would you fill and say that God is full of? Holiness? Majesty? Purity? Perfection? Love? Justice? Wrath? What John says here is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. To understand why that matters, we need to understand what grace and truth are. And I'm going to start with defining the second one, truth, because I feel like that's easier for us to wrap our minds around. Truth is this. It's that which accurately reflects reality. It's one of those words that's difficult to define without using it. You want to say, whatever's true, that's what the truth is. But I think we can wrap our minds pretty easily around it. I mean, I think most of us grew up taking true or false quizzes. It's not the false part. It's the true part. It's that which accurately reflects reality. Grace is a little bit more difficult. And not because we haven't been taught on it. I think a lot of us would be able to fill in a theological definition there. But what I mean by it's more difficult is that I think it's more difficult for us to internalize, to make sense of, to be able to actually comprehend God's grace. So let me start with that theological definition. The theological definition of grace is unmerited favor. That is a solid definition of grace. But I feel like it may not be practically helpful for us this morning to just stop there with unmerited favor. Because if you're anything like me, you haven't in the last month used the word unmerited. I know I haven't. Uh, And I also haven't used the word favor. Uh, Well, I have used, like, can you do me a favor? But I haven't used favor as it's used here. So I think we need to understand what it means because when we're talking about unmerited, it simply means this, undeserved. You don't deserve it. 
That is a key aspect to grace. You cannot deserve what you are being given. When we talk about favor, it shows up all sorts of different ways in Scripture. It can show up as kindness that's undeserved. It can show up as gifts given that are not deserved. And it shows up one other way, and I think this might be a little bit more difficult to comprehend, again, because of the culture around us, but it also shows up in Scripture as undeserved approval or acceptance. So what we have here is this unmerited favor is undeserved kindness, gifts, or approval. This is what our God is full of, grace and truth. So why does that matter? Well, there's a couple reasons, and we're going to see a whole bunch of reasons as we go through this passage, but right off the bat, I want to give you four quick reasons why this matters. Why does it matter that Jesus is full of grace and truth? The first is this. We've received from his fullness. That's what the next verse is going to tell us, is that we have received from his fullness. So whatever is in Christ, whatever he is full of, is what we're going to receive. It is a blessing that what he is full of is grace and truth. We have received grace and truth from him. When you picture the fullness of God being poured out on you, you would probably expect it to kill you, right? As a sinner and looking at a holy God, that holiness poured on you, you would think it would end you. But instead, what we find is that it blesses us beyond our wildest dreams. We have received from his fullness. Secondly, though, we're meant to be like him. Whatever we see Christ full of, that's what we're meant to be like. It is our destiny as Christians to be made into the image of Christ. That's what Romans 8, 28, and 29 tells us, that those who have been justified will be sanctified, and those who are sanctified will be glorified. Every single Christian looks forward to a day where we will be like Jesus. So when this describes Jesus as full of grace and truth, what we're seeing is what we are meant to be like, full of grace and truth. It's what the Spirit is alive at work in us doing, transforming us into the image of Christ, which means transforming us to be full of grace and truth. But there's a couple other practical things here. And that if Jesus is full of grace and truth, it means that grace and truth are not opposites. It does not mean that he is 50% grace and 50% truth. He is full of both. That grace and truth are not like left and right opposites or hot and cold where they dilute each other. And it's not like east and west where they will never meet. No, Jesus is full of both. So we need to comprehend a truth that is gracious and a grace that is truthful. And if they're not opposite, it means that grace and truth are not meant to be balanced. When we think about our destiny to be people of grace and truth, what we're not talking about is being able to discern in a given moment, which do they need right now, grace or truth? I'll give them grace this time. Okay, this time they've really messed up. They need truth, not grace. It's not a left hand or a right hand. It's a both and. It is grace and truth at every moment. That is what we have seen from Christ. 
We're not trying to balance them. We want to be full of them like our Savior. So how do we do that? And what does that look like? That's really where our next two truths come from. So let me tell you this. Our second truth that I want you to see about Jesus is this. Jesus lavishes his grace on us. This is verses 15 and 16. Look, if you will, because this is what it says. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. If we were to summarize what John is saying, what he's saying is this word is Jesus. Jesus is this word. What John, the author, is doing is helping us understand this incarnate word, God in the flesh. Who is it? And he's saying it's the one that John the Baptist talked about. So this is how John, the author, is saying Jesus Christ is this word, and John the Baptist testified to that fact. And one of the things that John the Baptist said is that even though Jesus was physically born after me, he existed before me, pointing to the fact that John the Baptist knew this is God in the flesh. So what is it about this God in the flesh? It says, and of his fullness we have all received. As Christians, we have received grace and truth from God. By definition of being a Christian, we have received grace. And truth. But he adds this interesting phrase, this grace for grace. Depending on your translation, that word for might be different. It could be upon, it could be instead of. But if we look at the original wording, literally it would mean grace that replaces grace. Grace that replaces grace is a weird phrase, and it probably means one of two things equally true. One way that we could look at it based on the next verse is that at one point in human history, God gave the law to his people. And that law was 613 commandments to his people, and that's a heavy weight. And part of the job of the law was to reveal human sinfulness and to point to a Savior. God did not give that law out of his wrath. He gave it as an act of kindness, and it wasn't a deserved kindness. It was an act of grace that God gave the law. But now Jesus was here fulfilling the law and replacing the role of the law in our lives where he is now the grace that we look toward. So that's one way of understanding grace that replaces grace. Another way of looking at it would be like what we sang about this morning or what we see in Lamentations chapter 3, where we receive God's grace and it feels like it's beginning to wear out. And we're heavy and we're burdened. But we wake up in the morning and we recognize that God's grace is fresh again. It doesn't run out. It doesn't run dry. We can never go too hard after Christ and outrun that grace. We will never plumb the depth of the riches of God's grace. So this grace that replaces grace could be pictured like standing on the edge of the ocean and a wave passes over you. And you experience that wave, that grace. And then that wave goes out and is replaced by another wave of grace. As Christians, we experience a wave after wave after wave of God's grace. His mercies are new every morning. 
Either way, grace that replaces grace, receiving from his fullness, the bottom line is that God's grace is immense. And it is incredible. And by definition, undeserved. Even in this chapter, take a look in verse 3. Because what you'll see there is grace. Grace of creation. The creator God didn't have to create us. He chose to. And we didn't deserve to be created. That's grace. In verses 4 and 5, we see the grace of illumination, that Christ shines the light into the darkness. We deserved the darkness. We do not deserve the light, but he offers it anyway. That's grace. In verses 6 through 9, we see the grace of prophets, that God sends messengers and speaks through people, and now we have his word. That is grace. We do not deserve the Bible. We can look in verse 11, the grace of incarnation, that God would take on flesh, become human, and live among us. That is grace. In verse 17, we have the grace of forgiveness, that we've been forgiven by this holy God. That is grace. Verse 29, we have the grace of redemption, that we have been purchased. That God owns us. We didn't deserve that. It's grace. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that God has poured on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are rich with grace. Romans 5, 1 through 3 tells us that the reason why we have access into this grace is because of Christ's sacrifice. That when we put our faith in Jesus, God's grace pours on us. He lavishes his grace on us. I want to mention at this point that this grace that he gives is anything but wishy-washy. Right? Because for some people in the room, that's going to be the fear. As all of this emphasis on grace means that we're just going to go wild and we're not going to focus on Christ anymore and we're just going to accept anything and everyone and be all loosey-goosey. That's the fear for some. For others, it's the danger. Some people here are in danger of misunderstanding this grace. In fact, as you continue to read in the Gospel of John, it becomes even easier to think that it's actually truth that's greater than grace. Because he drops truth here for a second, but in the next verse he mentions grace and truth again. But after that, in the Gospel of John, he does not mention the word grace again. But the word truth and true and truly is mentioned 55 more times. So does that mean grace is not as important as truth? Truth actually wins out over grace? No. That's why he starts the book, by saying Christ is full of both. Truth and grace are not opposed. Think of verses like John 8, 32, where it says, The truth will set you free. To be set free is an act of grace. We don't deserve to be set free from slavery to sin, but God chooses to show that kindness towards us undeservedly. And how does he do it? Through truth. But grace and truth are not opposed. Truth is how grace works. They are intimately connected all throughout the gospel because they are united in the heart of God of Christ. All throughout Scripture, God's grace is rooted in truth. 
God does not forgive because he says, you know what, let's just forget about your sin. We're good. Don't worry about it. God does not force himself to forget about it and just say, I'm just going to try not to think about their sin. I'm just going to try not to think about their sin. The reason we are forgiven, the reason we're shown grace, remember Romans 5, is because Christ died in our place. If God were to just wave his hand and say, let's just not worry about it, there would be no justice. There would be no truth. It would be forgiveness from ignorance. God forgives from truth because the forgiveness is based on Christ's sacrifice. You owed a debt because of your sin. Christ paid that debt. It is forgiven. Which means God's grace is not based on an emotion. It's not based on a a movement. It's not based on our deservedness. And it's also not just, I guess I'll choose to do it. It is rooted and grounded, unshakable towards you. So you don't have to worry that God's going to wake up one day and remember what you did. There is no continued shame. You are forgiven. We have a solid foundation of grace because that grace is built on the truth of Jesus Christ. What that tells us is is that if your grace is not rooted in truth, you do not have God's grace. If your truth is not rooted in, if your grace is not rooted in truth, you do not have God's grace. So at this point, I think uh, it starts to sit in, like, this is very cerebral, this is very up in the clouds. What does this actually mean for loving the people around me? Which is the question I want to answer. What does this look like practically? And if we're going to understand what it looks like on a day-to-day level, there's no better place to look than Jesus' day-to-day. So what I want to ask you to do is turn to Matthew 23 to look at Jesus' life. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 23 and understand what this grace looked like to Jesus. As you turn there, I'm going to give you just a quick summary of what goes on in this chapter. The chapter begins by Jesus turning to the crowds and telling the crowds, don't follow the Pharisees. Listen to their teaching, but do not follow their example because they're hypocrites. They're empty. They don't know what they're doing. They're the blind leading the blind. Don't listen to them. After that, he turns to the Pharisees and he pronounces seven woes on the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Four more times, telling them where they are hypocrites, where they are blind, where they are lacking the life of God, and even goes so far as to say, what's going to stop you from going to hell? Then the last bit of this chapter is him turning and looking at all of Jerusalem, And saying, oh, Jerusalem, you killed the prophets that I sent you. I would love to take you under my wing, but you refuse. That is Matthew chapter 23. And you may hear that and go, maybe Pastor Dan mixed up his stories. That sounds a whole lot more like truth than grace. But that's why I picked it. There are other stories we could pick out that very clearly show God's grace. But I want you to see his grace in his truth so that we don't think they're opposites. So think through that story and look through it in front of you. Who does he show grace to? Well, the first people that he shows grace to are the crowds. 
This is God in the flesh choosing to spend time with ordinary people. Do they deserve that? No. And he speaks up and says, beware, be careful. There is a poison that you need to not swallow. Do they deserve that warning? No. They are headed off a cliff, following the Pharisees into hell, and Jesus speaks up and says, watch out. That is grace. He also shows grace to the Pharisees. Rather than letting them just be condemned in their self-righteousness, he calls out their sinfulness as a call to repentance. It's not a call of, this is what you're doing. Good luck. It's a, watch what you're doing. This is not God at work. You are in danger, Pharisees. And in fact, what we see are Pharisees that turn and follow Christ instead. This is God's grace speaking up to the Pharisees. And we also see God's grace to Jerusalem, the city that murdered his prophets, the city that would rather kill than to follow God, the city that refused time and time and time again to follow God, the city that Jesus looks on and sees full of sinners. He wants them. He says, I want to bring you under my wing like a hen would with its chicks, but you refuse. In spite of their refusal, Christ wants them. What grace! So what does this tell us about Jesus' love? Firstly, it tells us that Jesus did not base his treatment of others on their treatment of him. We fall into that trap, but Jesus didn't. The crowds will at one point worship his name, praise his name, call his name, and at another point they will call for his death. At one point they'll follow him for food and then walk away because of his teaching. But Jesus still showed them grace. The Pharisees plot to kill Jesus and eventually succeed in their plot to kill Jesus and try to trick him and trap him and pull followers away and stop his ministry, and Jesus shows them grace. Jerusalem kills prophet after prophet, refuses to have anything to do with God, and claims that they are following God, and Jesus shows them grace. But it also shows us that Jesus offered others more good than they deserved whether or not they would accept it. Jesus didn't just offer his grace to those who would repent and turn. It was also offered to anyone who would hear. He offered more good than they offered him. He was willing to speak up and live out goodness towards those who did nothing but treat him with evil. I mention this and make such a fine point on it because if this is how Jesus loved, this is how we're meant to love. Do you feel conviction when you see your Savior and his love? Why would we think that Jesus is okay with us treating each other in ways that he would never treat us? Why would we be complacent when we ignore his example and his calling. 
And what's more is we're commanded to follow his example. We can look in so many passages of Scripture, but we'll look primarily in Colossians 3. It says this, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against one another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. This is what we mean by gospel motivation. It's one of our values here at our church. And what it means is that what we have received in the gospel is going to set what we do for others. That if we have received grace from God, we're going to offer grace toward one another. If we've been forgiven by God, I'm going to forgive others. If I've been loved by God, I'm going to love others. What I have received in the gospel is what I'm going to offer others with my life. So when God offers grace, we should too. But this doesn't come from ourselves. If you walk away this morning just thinking, yeah, I got to really try harder, it's not going to work. This grace cannot be manufactured by yourself. If you want to be a person of grace, you must be a person of truth. Because in truth, the only way you can show this grace is if you have received this grace. And the more you receive this grace, the more you are filled up with this grace, and the more you are transformed by this grace, and the more you will show this grace. That the grace and truth from Christ to us transforms us by the work of the Spirit in us and transforms the way that we interact with others. If you want to be a person of greater grace, be a person of greater truth in God's grace toward you. And what this also means is that if the truth you have is not leading you into greater grace, you do not yet have God's truth. You don't get it yet. We can be very content and very high-minded about our own personal knowledge, but if that knowledge is not yet transforming us into showing others the kind of grace that we have received, we don't have God's truth yet in that area. So let me ask you, do you base your relationships on God's grace? Not grace in general, but the grace that's been given to you. Will you base your relationships with others off of the grace that God gave you? Let me ask you a couple different ways. Much the same thing. Do you currently base your treatment of others on their treatment of you? Will you continue in a relationship with someone that simply doesn't perform to your standards? Will you only welcome those who you feel add something to your life? Will you only accept those you feel are on your level? Or will you forgive? Will you treat others with grace even when they don't show you grace? Will you show kindness to the unkind? Will you let the foundation of your relationship with everyone around you be the grace God has given you in your relationship with him? But what's more, do you fill your relationships with God's grace? Is there encouragement in your relationships? Is there room for trial and error? 
Do people feel comfortable around you to grow? Which means at times they will be imperfect because they have growth to be done. Do people feel like they need to be perfect around you? Are you stingy with your kindness and your gifts and your approval? It hits me the hardest, but this last one. Would someone ever call you gracious? Would someone ever describe you as full of grace? When it comes to God's grace, there's one more question I want to ask you. Do you let others do the same to you? That's what it means to be in a reciprocal community, that one to each other we are going to show grace. So do you let other people show you grace? Do you hold yourself to an impossible standard? Do you hide yourself away when feeling guilty? Do you allow yourself to be weak around others? Do you allow others to meet your needs? Do you let other people show you God's grace to you? I'm challenging all of us, myself included, we need to dig into God's grace in a way that transforms us to offer it to others in our day-to-day relationships. But that's half of it. Let's see the other half in truth number three, that Jesus graciously offers us all truth. Jesus graciously offers us all truth. This shows up in two different ways in this passage. The first is this, that Jesus is the truth. He's not a snake oil salesman. He's not a charlatan. He's not a false messiah. He's not a false prophet. He is the truth. We see that in particular when John says, for the law was given through Moses, and then it's going to contrast it with Jesus. Why? He brings it up because the law was pointing to something and someone. It revealed sinfulness and said, there's going to be a savior. So Time and time again in the law, there are ceremonies and feasts and festivals and all of these different things reminding us of our sinfulness, reminding us of our Savior, and looking to the day that the Savior is coming. And it says then, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. At one point, we look forward to the truth coming, to be revealed. It came with Jesus. Jesus is that truth. Jesus is not a guru or a yogi that leads us into a greater truth of Christianity. He is that truth. He is the truth that everything has been pointing to. Which means we don't go past Jesus in Christianity to grow. We go deeper into Jesus to grow. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer will often say it this way that The gospel of Jesus is not the diving board into the pool of Christianity. It's not your ticket to heaven. It's not the thing that gets you in. The gospel of Jesus is the whole pool that we swim in for the rest of our lives. That's why we say that the gospel is for every person at every moment. Every Christian needs the gospel at every moment because we do not go beyond Jesus. We go deeper into Jesus. He is the truth. And that also means that every other claim to truth is tested against the standard of Jesus. If it does not accord with Jesus, it is not true. But what's more is that Jesus shares the truth. Jesus is the truth, but he also shares the truth. That's why John says, no one has seen God at any time. Remember, he was just saying that we have seen God's glory in the word. 
that would lead you to believe we've seen God, but he reminds us that, no, we have not seen God, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. That's saying the same thing that verse 1 is saying. This Son who is God and is with God, he has declared him. The incarnate word declares God to us. He reveals the truth that we need. Because in Christ, we see God. We see what God is like. We see God's desire. We see the standard we are called to live to. And we see our own sinfulness because we know we cannot live to that standard. But what's more, in seeing our sinfulness, we see a way of escape from the judgment coming on our sinfulness. And we see the way of salvation. And once we've seen salvation in Christ, we've received salvation, and then we see sanctification, the way that we are to live now. And we see our destiny of what we are meant to be like. Jesus reveals the truth that we need. And it's, again, a good point to mention that this truth is anything but lacking grace. God's grace is not lacking truth, but God's truth is not lacking grace. We can see this in so many ways, but let me call out just a couple. First is this, that grace is the reason God offers truth in the first place. We don't deserve God to disclose himself to us. God had a right to a divine privacy for all eternity. There was nothing that we deserve to hear from God, but God spoke. And God sent his son. We receive truth from God, not because we deserve it, but because of God's grace. Even further, grace is necessary to receive that truth. So God sends a light into the darkness. God comes as a light into the darkness. And in the verse, it says, the darkness did not comprehend the light. But at the same time, later on, it says that we look to this word, to God in the flesh, and we see his glory. There are some who don't see his glory, and there are some that do. 2 Corinthians 2 tells us why. It's that the God of this age, the devil, Satan, has blinded the eyes of those who are not able to see God's glory in the gospel. They can look at Jesus, they can hear the good news, they can see him, but they do not perceive the truth. So that's why Jesus says in John 3 that the light came into the world, but they hated the light, and it's because they love their darkness. But later on, 2 Corinthians, it tells us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. That what we understand spiritually is because the Spirit is working in us, helping us understand. When we perceive God's glory, it is an act of God's grace. Isn't that humbling for just a second? The only reason God shared his truth is not because you deserved it, but because he chose undeservedly to show you kindness. And the only reason you understand the truth that you know is not because of your vast intellect, but because of God's grace making it available to you. And what's even more is that grace is the truth we receive. Grace is the reason truth is shared. Grace is necessary to receive that truth. But when we do receive that truth, what we're receiving is the truth of God's grace. Jesus coming is saying, God is gracious and will forgive 
Repent and be saved. That's grace. So if your grace lacks truth, you don't have God's grace. But if your truth lacks grace, you don't have God's truth. A graceless truth is not God's truth. So what does that look like practically? Again, let's look to Jesus' life. Look at John 11. Flip over a couple pages and look in John 11. As you do, let me give you a synopsis of what we see here. Jesus receives word that his friend Lazarus is dying. And it says that because he loved this family of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, he waits where he is two days instead of going to visit Lazarus. That's interesting. From there, the disciples questioned Jesus' wisdom in going back to Judea because they were almost stoned there. And the disciples say, is this really smart for us to go back? Jesus explains why they will be okay and why it's the right thing to do. They go back even though Thomas says, I guess we'll just go die with him. Before they can get there, outside of the village of Bethany, Martha comes running out and asks Jesus and talks to Jesus and says, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. And they have a conversation where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And Martha confesses it, goes back, Mary comes out and falls at Jesus' feet and weeps. And Jesus looks at this woman weeping at his feet and looks at the mourners around who are weeping over the death of Lazarus. And he weeps. Not a tear, but weeps. From there, he goes to the tomb, and as he goes to the tomb again, he has this another wave of grief that comes over him. Then he prays out loud and says, God, thank you that you have heard me. I know you always hear me, but I'm praying this so that the people around me may know. And then he calls Lazarus out of the tomb and raises Lazarus from the dead. From there, many believe, but some go back to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees begin to plot Jesus' death. So again, you might be thinking, that sounds a whole lot like grace, and now we've confused it even further, but I want you to see the grace in his truth, because who is Jesus sharing truth to? Shares it with his disciples who question him and don't understand and don't even believe him when he shares the truth. He shares it with Martha, who is upset with him. And in this intense moment of grief, he shares the truth. And he shares the truth with the crowd. Those who are around and mourning and are a part of the community, he speaks out loud when he doesn't have to so that they may know and that they may believe. What does this tell us about Jesus' love? In part, it tells us that Jesus gave truth to the ignorant, the distracted, the deceived, and the blind like us as an act of love. Remember it said that he waited two more days after he knew Lazarus was dying. He could have gone right away and healed him and kept him from dying, but Jesus intentionally left him to die out of love that they may see his power and see the truth and believe. Jesus did not just offer the truth to the studious to the smart, to the well-educated. He offered truth to anyone who would hear. What's more, it tells us that Jesus spoke when it would be easier to not speak. 
Think about the stress of nearly being stoned and fleeing the area. That's some stress. Think about how difficult it is to speak truth when you're under that intense emotion. Or someone runs up to you and confronts you about a decision you've made. How hard is it to speak truth then? Or people are upset around you and they're crying around you. How difficult is it to think of what to say? Jesus spoke when it would be easier to not speak. And he spoke what was uh, unaccepted by some. Lastly, it shows us that Jesus took the opportunity to bring God's truth into people's lives. Where they were, what they needed, even when it was hard. If this is how our Savior loves, this is how we should love. We should not rely on earthly platitudes, human wisdom, shouldn't rely on folksy sayings. We need to base our relationships on and fill our relationships with God's truth. In part because we are called to be truth bringers. Mark 16.15 tells us that we are supposed to go into all of creation and preach the gospel to every creature. We are supposed to be gospel speakers. 2 Corinthians tells us that we are ambassadors for God as if Christ is making his case through us. Matthew 5 tells us that we are salt and light and that when people see our good works, they will glorify God. We're meant to be God revealers through the truth. Ephesians 4 tells us that by speaking the truth in love, relying on the truth, that's how we as a group will grow. We are meant to speak truth. And this truth that we speak is not just any truth. It is the truth of Christ. What we fill our mouths with in our conversations with each other is not meant to just be jokes and sarcasm and soapboxes and controversies, and it's never to be gossip. What we speak is God's truth. Not my best idea recently, not my interesting thoughts, but always pointing back to what Christ has shared with us. That in the same way, the grace from God is what we offer others. The truth from God is what we offer others. So let me ask you, do you base your relationships on God's truth? Because the truth is that we are one body in Christ. I am a toe or an earlobe or a piece of hair, probably a freckle. I'm a part of the body, and you are too. We fit together. When I hurt, the body hurts. When you hurt, the body hurts. When you're not here, a body part is missing. Is that what you think about when you see the people around you? We are one body. We are one family. Jesus demonstrated this, and there was a time when his earthly family came to the door, and the people that he was teaching said, hey, Jesus, your family's here. He says, my family are those who do the will of God. The same is true for you and me. You are my mothers and fathers. 
my brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, whatever family term you want to put. You're my family. Do you see each other that way? Or is it based on a common opinion, a hot take, a similarity of thought? Or is it based on God's truth? And do you fill your relationships with God's truth? What do you talk about? If you took the collection of all of the conversations that we have here, could we describe it as full of truth? Or is it full of opinion, full of speculation, full of gossip, full of sarcasm? Do we talk about inane, pointless things? Or are we spending our precious time on earth talking and sharing what God has shared with us? How much does the Bible come up in your conversations? When you're in that intense moment of confrontation or stress or sorrow and you have to console someone or encourage someone, what do you reach for? Is it an, oh, shucks, that's too bad? Or is it rooted in God's truth? I've been challenged with this recently, especially as I've been studying this. Just walking with people through life in a good moment and a bad moment. Do I just go, oh yeah, cool. Or, oh man, that's terrible. Do I take the opportunity to speak that it may give grace to the hearer? Speak truth. Last question I need to ask is, Do you let others do the same to you? In your group of friends, are you the one who's just constantly talking, never listening? My mom would tell me that there's a reason why you have two ears and one mouth. Got to listen more than you speak. James says the same thing. That we should be slow to speak, quick to listen. Do you just politely wait for your turn to speak, or are you actually taking in the truth that they're sharing? Do you just put up with people who share God's truth with you? Or do you actively invite them into your life to tell you where you're wrong? Not just confirm what you think, but to tell you you're wrong. Do you invite that? Do you want God's love to be poured out over you through God's people pouring God's truth over you? Are you willing to fill your relationships with truth? If we want to be people of God's grace and God's truth, we need to dig deeper into God's truth. So we can summarize all of it this way. This is what today looks like if we were to summarize it on a single slide. Jesus' love caused him to extend grace and truth. So loving like Jesus will move us to pursue grace and truth in our relationships. As we close, I want you to just picture what that would be like. If we were to intentionally at every moment pursue grace and truth, sharing and receiving grace and truth from one another, think about how desirable that community would be. Because it would be God going forth from us. Think about how healing that community would be. And honestly, God would get absurd amounts of glory from a people willing to deny themselves 
fill themselves with God's grace and truth, and share it with one another. That is why we as a pastoral staff are passionate about it this year. So I want to share with you as, uh, as the closing what we're going to do about this. Again, if we want to be people of grace, we need to be people of truth. So we have some goals we want to share with you about how we can dig deeper into God's grace and truth. The first is this. In the next year, as we seek to pursue grace and truth in our relationships, our aim is to refine the focus and reemphasize the value of our Wednesday night adult Bible study. Every Wednesday night, we come together to sing God's truth and to study God's truth, to be people of grace toward one another, to pray for one another. We want to make sure we are making the most out of that gift that God has given us, that time together. Secondly, we want to launch a new structure for our adult Sunday school ministry on September 12th. That is being primarily led by Pastor Joe. He's going to be sharing details as we get closer to that date. Thirdly, though, as part of that Sunday school, our aim is to have at least 75% of beginnings class attendees take our new community class. We have been so blessed, or at least I have, in seeing so many people go through the beginnings class this past year. Our first core class about the, uh, the foundations of our faith and the foundations of who we are as a church. This year, we look forward to starting our second core class. That those who have gone through the beginnings class, we encourage you to take this community class, which is all about this topic of being people of grace and truth together. Fourthly, our aim is to have at least 100 individuals read through two recommended books together on the heart of Christ about how to be people of grace and truth. We'll talk about the first one on September 12th, which we're calling our launch day. Lastly, we want to make sure that all of this truth is actually doing its work in us. So this year, our aim is to hear at least 10 stories of newfound grace. That newfound grace could be newly understanding the grace that God is pouring on you. It could be a newly experienced grace that somebody is expressing toward you. Or it can be a grace that God is pouring through you towards someone. God helping you to show grace to someone that you previously didn't. We want to hear those stories and we want to share those stories so that God gets the glory. That is what we're looking forward to this year. Church, dig into God's truth that we may be people of grace and truth like our Savior. Let me close in prayer. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak. God, it is a grace that I don't deserve. I don't deserve to have people look at me and hear from me and try to exegete your word. I don't deserve this platform. But God, I pray that you would use everything that I've said for your glory. If I said something that wasn't true, just flush it from our minds. But God, use every truth that we have seen in your word to sanctify us, to change us, to grow us. God, help us to be more like you, to love like you this year by being people of grace and truth. That when people look at us and our lives and our actions and our attitudes and our legacy, we may be counted as being like you, full of grace and truth. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together once again as we celebrate how God...